0: Hello, 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 and welcome to Finding Matt Damon. Uh, This is the podcast where we interview industry professionals about their lives, careers, successes, and failures, uh, compiling a beautiful list of stories all on our way to meet the one and only Matt Damon. On this week's episode, we got to chat with Susan Booth, who is the artistic director at the Alliance Theater in Atlanta, Georgia. She is Absolutely amazing in every way, shape, and form. A joy to talk to, a fascinating woman who has a really interesting take on theater and its role in today's communities around the US. Um, so please enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Could you tell me who Matt Damon is and what does he mean to you? And while you're at it, could you tell me who is your Ben Affleck to? Matt Damon is maybe just the friends you meet along the way. So let's all talk about Matt Damon and have a great day.
1: Hello there. Hi. How are you? Good. Great. How are you? you?
0: I'm good. Thank you. Hi, Susan. I'm Maggie. I'm Maggie. And I'm Sam.
2: Hello, Sam.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today on Finding Matt Damon. We're very excited to have you. You are in Atlanta today, I assume? I
2: am in Atlanta, Georgia.
0: Amazing. Is it sunny there? Is it nice?
2: Uh, Off and on, we're actually having a summer shower, which is kind of a
1: nice thing. Okay. We're having a thunderstorm right now in New York City, and it is crazy. (laughs) It's scary. There's lots of lightning. Yeah. Yeah
0: in a big city. It's, it's wild. Um, so Susan, we have some questions for you about your whole life. <laughs> um, All of it. Start to finish. All right. um, First question is you have a daughter and her name is Moira Rose.
2: Yes, it is. And she is older than Shits Creek.
1: We were we were wondering that before the episode because we, I saw that on the on your like page on the yeah. Alliance Theater website. And I said to Maggie, I was like, can you imagine if like she came before the TV show?
2: She is a 17 year old human.
1: Wow. What happened? And I have so had what happened? people
2: look right at her and say, did you name her? First?
1: Right. Cause the show came out like six years ago. Uh-huh. So, um, I am precious. So, you knew. Yeah, you they did knew. that. You you inspired that character. Um, that's, what, that's how did you react the when the show came out? <laughs> yeah, so you know, I was Schicksil excited
2: because okay. my kid has not had a whole lot of other Moiras in the world, and yeah. in the world of having a really exemplary role model <laughs> with one's name, I just can't imagine doing better
1: truly really. first like her it's, it's the character's full name too which is it's not even oh, just yeah. moira i love it yeah that's that fantastic. is magical i wonder if dan levy met your daughter at some point it was like that's the name for this yeah. character i'm sure that was it i'm
2: sure that was <laughs> it she had, a, she had a very active pre-adolescence mm-hmm. that we really didn't keep track of so i'm sure yes. it's, it's possible <laughs>
1: just means
0: left and right
2: that's right Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> classic classic nine-year-old
1: yeah.
0: um and then so I would love to hear a little bit about working at the alliance specifically something that we haven't talked to a lot of other artistic directors about is the process of moving a show from a theater like the alliance to Broadway right you've Your theater has done that many times with a great number of enormous shows. And I'm so curious if you could tell us a little bit about like the logistics of that and what that might look like if people are interested in
2: pursuing that. I mean, the the cool part of it is that every single process is completely different, right? Just like every show has its own demands in terms of who the creative team is, how the show is, is conceived, what moment it lands in, all that good stuff. And the same is true when you're, when you're doing a work that ends up on that trajectory. The, the thing that is so, so important, and this determines what partnerships we enter into, first and foremost, the show has to make sense for the Alliance Theater in Atlanta, Georgia, right? And not every show always will. And I, I love the fact that the, the first one of these in my tenure here, was the color purple. And I can't imagine a work that is better suited this this beloved international author, but Georgia born author telling this very specific Southern story. And the fact that that was uh, a first in my tenure was a cool thing. But in terms of what it looks like there's a whole lot more people at the table with opinions
1: Mm.
2: uh, than there typically is when it's a a homegrown piece of work. It means that you have a different scale of resource with which to envision the show. When we do a work our own selves at the Alliance Theater, our, our budget is of one scale when we do a show in commercial partnership, that scale can be three and four times larger. One of the myths around doing this kind of work is that it's wildly enriching that there's just this big Brinks truck dump of money to the bottom line of the theater. And uh, that's not actually the case. What we do is figure out with the creative team, what their goals are for this first professional production. Do they want to really hunker down and work on the libretto? Do they want to come to the other end of a production with a physical production that is, that is ready to travel, right? And we establish what their goals are, both in terms of how the script might want to evolve and around the production. And we budget out what that looks like on a not-for-profit LORT theater platform. And then we sit down with the producers and we say, this is what it costs to do what you and your creative team want to accomplish in this first production. Here's what we can bring to the table. And the delta between that number and what we just determined the budget is that's where the commercial producer shows up, right?
0: Does Broadway come to you all and is like, hey, we have this show, it's not ready for Broadway, can you do it here and have that kind of like focus on libretto moment? Or do the playwrights come to you? Like how, how does it get to the Alliance?
2: Yeah, typically a show that has those wonderful benevolent beings we call commercial producers attached to it, there's been a fair amount of Developmental work that's already happened, mm. and now we're at the place where we've we've done our table readings, we've done our our three day workshops, we've done our twenty nine hour workshops, we've done our month long workshop. Damn it, it's time for the big McGilla, right? Mm. And that's the point at which we enter into the conversation. And sometimes that is a producer will will make a call sometimes that is a, a creative will, will come and say, and that typically is the second, third or fourth time you're working with somebody, right? Where you've had a really wonderful experience with somebody and they know, and I, I, I will brag on my theater till the cows come home, um, yeah, which is a kind of a farming metaphor and Atlanta is not that, but whatever. <laughs> we take incredibly good care of new work. Mm. And that means that we meet the work with lots and lots of interrogation around what what is needed to support the, the healthy evolution of this work. So as a result, there are directors and playwrights who say to their commercial partners, hey, when it's time for that first production, would you please talk to the nice people at the Alliance Theater? Yeah, no kidding. You just made the, all oh, boo-boo face, uh, which doesn't always translate on a podcast, uh, and that is exactly how I feel when a really amaze balls. I, I I will tell you a specific one because it just melted my heart. Casey Nicola worked with us for the first time on *Tuck Everlasting*, and oh. Casey Nicola just just knocks my socks off in every possible way. The vision, the work ethic, the kindness, the collaborative spirit. He is just the bee's needs to spend time with working on a project. When the prom was starting to heat up and starting to to need a theater, he was good enough to say to his producing partners, hey, I had a really splendid time and I'd like to go back there and you're not supposed to have favorites, right? Which is a good reason to have exactly one child. Uh, I, I, I am not sliding anything else that we've ever done, but I, I have to tell you prom was just a joy bomb. The, the process, the, the end result, it just made your face hurt because you were grinning, whether you were in the rehearsal hall or in the audience it was just glorious and so the the relationship part of that mattered a lot
0: my very best friend took me to see the prom on Broadway and it was just amazing start to finish beautiful beautiful
2: soft- my day for opening night was Moira Rhodes
0: oh well there you amazing. go
2: there it is <laughs> full circle
0: off of the prom I'm curious Hi. Do y'all play a role then in like the movie adaptation? Like how does, do you have any say in that?
2: I'm going to answer that. But first I have to observe that you just yelled.
1: Oh. She did y'all.
2: Where where we are you from? both y'all. You both <laughs> y'all, where, where are y'all from? Where are your people from?
0: Um, I'm from Baltimore. So I have no real reason. That, that was to... a
2: suspect y'all.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is, it is.
2: What about you, I mean, Sam?
1: I I lived in Florida for 14 years, so that's where mine comes from. That's that.
2: It's not full on authentic, but it's a viable y'all. I agree. I would say <laughs>
1: some Back of it was time. North Florida. I was very close to Georgia. I frequented Atlanta during that time. There it is. There it is. That's, okay. that's it. Glad we,
2: I'm glad <laughs> we put uh, that up. With with something uh, a project that we that we premiere moving on to another medium, we really stay involved through closing night at the Alliance Theater in terms of our creative role on the show, we happily have a a small, small, small subsidiary financial participation in the piece as it goes on to its commercial run, be that Broadway tour, uh, UK, whatever it is. When we jump into another medium, we're, we're just, we fan out with everybody else. We we are not participatory at that point. But the glorious thing is the the folks who are working at a level that makes them logical uh, suspects to have work on Broadway tend to be some of the most collaborative, ego-free people who genuinely want feedback. Right and and my my only threshold, that's a lie too. One, it has to be right for Atlanta, but the other one is I have no interest in the alliance being some kind of antiseptic. I was going to say petri dishes, but petri dishes aren't antiseptic, are they? I, what <laughs> what we're not is just a venue,
1: mm. right?
2: So mm-hmm. if a work's going to premiere with us, then I need to know that my artistic staff is is welcome in the rehearsal process that we're gonna have an active generative conversation because part of it being right for Atlanta is we have the great gift and luxury of being Atlantans, right? And so we can can listen for things and say, okay, be aware that that's gonna resonate in this way. Right, And if somebody comes to Atlanta and makes the perfect show for New York, but it blows for Atlanta, that's gonna affect, certainly gonna affect us. We're not gonna feel good about what we're putting in front of our audience, but it's gonna affect the trajectory of the show, right? Because Mm -hmm. the audience is such a critical component in that developmental evolution, right? And if they're sitting Mm -hmm. there like they're watching springtime for Hitler, you're not gonna get a lot of good information.
1: Yeah. Can you expand on this, uh, if the show is right for Atlanta? We've, Maggie and I have now gotten to talk to a lot of different artistic directors from theaters around the country. And you know, we talked to Kurt, which led us to you. Right. And he was our first artistic director kind of in the New England theater scene. So we talked about that a little bit. Yep. I would love to hear in your words, what makes a show for Atlanta and kind of what that theater scene is like.
2: It's a great question and, and shame on me because I'm, I'm going to, having brought it up, I'm going to say it's almost impossible to do. <laughs> uh, and I expect other people to, to do yeah. it, right? Um, I will tell you this little, little sidebar story. There was a time a bunch of years ago where Second City was partnering with regional theaters around the country. And what they would do is they would send a writing team, they would parachute them in, and the writing team would spend some time in the city where the show was going to be presented to uh, listeners. I'm making giant air quotes to figure out the city, right? Which is a crock of shit. I mean, the, the idea that you're going to come in for three days and figure out the city, anyway. But what I what I loved is when when our smarty pants, I say that with respect, those are my favorite kinds of people. When our smarty pants, Second City writers finished a very well curated tour of Atlanta, they basically said to us, this is impossible because there is no such thing as an Atlanta way, right? We are a global city. We're a radically diverse city. We are the South, but we're the new South, but also, Atlanta, big blue dot in big red state. You, it's porous, right? And so you have these these cosmopolitan urbanites that make their home in Atlanta, but you also have people who who grew up in Valdosta and decided, okay, now it's time to go to the big city mm-hmm. as grown folks and came and they brought a more rural background with them here and we all coexist sometimes easily and sometimes not i will say what makes a show an alliance and an atlanta show again i talk with my hands which is so not useful on <laughs> but the the gesture that that always comes up when when we're talking about a show in our artistic department is one index finger points to the heart and one index finger points to the head. And we talk about where a play starts. And for a play to make sense in Atlanta, it's got to start at the heart and then go to the head, not vice versa. The thing about the order of where it starts and where it goes in Atlanta, we've worked really hard to build an audience that at any given time could actually look like our city, not Sequentially, right? You know, the American theater model white play, white play, Black History Month, Black play, white play, white play, none of that. This is a kind, we call it radical concurrent diversity. Radical meaning we're talking about your educational background, your economic position, your age, your religious beliefs or lack thereof. You know, we're talking about all the kinds of diversity, but concurrence, the important part we're all gonna sit together. And I'm gonna be shoulder to shoulder with somebody who maybe is seeing theater for the only the first or second time because they're 18 years old and they came to us through a teen program. And on the other side is that is that pillish person who's like, in London, six times a year, and has seen everything and has opinions about everything, right? And the three of us are going to sit there and we're going to encounter work together. Well, if it starts in the heart, if that's the aperture where the narrative starts, then the playing field just got leveled, right? And we also, we, and, I'm gonna keep saying this, hoping it continues to be true, but I think in our, our current American shit show, it might not be. I, I think if you circumvent people's brains right at the beginning of a narrative and just go pure heart, you have a tiny fighting shot of getting past people's biases. Because what, what happens at the heart level is, oh, I've laughed at that, I've cried about that, I've been frightened by that, I've worried about that, as opposed to, that sounds like a democratic point of view, right, which is all the stuff that goes on when a piece starts with your gray matter, right? You evaluate the voice, you evaluate the argument, you interrogate the the agenda, and we're so flippin' polarized 24-7 now that, you run the risk of an audience member defining a character, not based on the narrative of the play, but the narrative of of the audience members own judgment set. So long ass answer to the question, but I think what makes something a great Atlanta play, a great Alliance play, is is it gets good and burrowed into your soft spots before it it travels north as it were uh, to to muck around in your intellect
1: that's one of the best answers we've gotten on this podcast <laughs> excellent oh it's well, fantastic. I fantastic
0: your examples right because it like yeah. helps mm-hmm. me visualize like what's happening and thinking a lot about the prom in this context of like mm-hmm. such such a heartfelt such a pure thing and then that one song that i always think of which is the um Oh, the one where he's like, cut, let's, um, have you ever masturbated? Great, let's cut off your hands. And like, let's send your mother to hell." Yes,
2: yes, (laughs) Um, uh, uh, Love Thy Neighbor.
1: Yes. Love
2: Thy Neighbor, just brilliantly uh, performed by Chris Sieber. Right, right. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) you know, God love you, Andrew Reynolds, but Chris Sieber. What's cool about prom as an example of this head and heart thing, right? Is had we done a um, polemic work about LGBTQ rights in public schools. Mm -hmm. Now that'd be a fascinating piece, right? It'd be great to read, it'd be great to watch, it'd be great to argue about afterwards. Part of, if you buy into diversity, you gotta buy into all of it. Mm -hmm. And that means you're not singularly preaching to your own political choir in the audience, right? And if we did the head version of that story, then it's entirely possible that some people would have clocked out and said, oh, oh, here it comes, here it comes, here it comes, right? And they would have shut down receptivity to that story, but instead smart, smart book writer on this show decided to go in and make you fall in love with this young woman, right? And you became her, her champion, her ally, her advocate. And then you realized what you were advocating for, which was her right to love anybody she damn well pleased. But it's because it started in the heart. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: That's so, in such a like complicated place Atlanta sits. And then to have this kind of like, how do we serve our whole community? It's so interesting. And it, they say that the best way to someone's brain is like through their open, laughing mouth. Isn't
2: that a, I um, love that. I think-
0: Heard that. That's not. And I
2: point. don't. You've said it, so it's now <laughs> yeah, been said. <laughs>
0: said. I like
2: it a lot. That's brilliant.
0: But yeah, it's like the, the best way to like change someone's mind is when they're laughing.
2: Um, oh yeah. I mean, you go back to Aristotle was a pretty smart cookie, right? And when you go back to the Poetics, he talks about spectacle, and he was specifically talking about the kind of chanting and intoning. that that the Greeks would use, but but if you dig into it, what he was really talking about is sometimes you have to circumvent logic. And if you want a communal event to truly live and resonate in community, you need spectacle. And that can be song, and that can be laughter, and that can be just a, a smoking good tap number, but something that makes you feel and resonate out with the people with whom you're sharing space. That's, that's, yeah, that's entertainment. That's great. That's, that's awesome. It's also sneaky, sneaky, subversive. And it's really useful to my mind in this particular American moment we're in where everybody's so quick to us and them, Mm. everything.
0: Totally. Mm. It, It always makes me think of the Book of Mormon. Have you seen that show? Yes, I have. So, so raunchy, so inappropriate, so silly, so fun, but such an interesting interrogation of the role religion plays in our society. Completely.
2: I Um, went to see it shortly after it opened. I was uh, in New York on a casting trip for a show I was doing and my casting director, who I love madly from the Alliance Theater, Jody Feldman, who's from Bruton, Alabama. And a, and a deeply sophisticated, savvy human being. So let it be said. But Jodi and I were sitting together. We had sweet, sweet house seats. And the show was starting and we we're having the most marvelous time. And she was turning to me saying, We have to do this. We have to do this at the Alliance. We have to. Yeah, yeah. And then the um, crazy, fucked up hell dream
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and the gonorrhea song. <laughs> I thought, Perhaps not, Mm -hmm. perhaps Mm -hmm. at least not yet. It was early enough in my tenure that I thought I want to keep my job just a little
1: longer. (laughs) Um, I'm glad you mentioned your tenure. Are you this month celebrating your 20th year at the Alliance?
2: Wow. You, you do your homework. I try to. (laughs) I'm so impressed. That's so funny. Um, I actually, I, I, my first day of work was July 1st, 2001.
1: So that you're in your 20th year. Crazy. That's tough. I, yeah, I thought that, I'd celebrate
2: my 20th year with a pandemic. With a pandemic.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, this is probably uh, an interesting question or like an obvious question with the pandemic. But um, how have you seen the Alliance change in these two decades? Mm. And it's I get that in the past year, it's probably more so. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great
2: question. We have absolutely evolved into a teaching theater in a huge way. And by that, I don't just mean we have a, a nice little education program, because that's, that's not us. We are sitting in... the civil bookends, right? The civil war, the civil rights movement. And we are sitting in a metropolitan area that has one of the lowest third grade literacy rates in the country. And the third grade literacy rate is the extrapolator that from which you can determine educational outcomes, economic outcomes, right? We live in a city that, that goes back and forth with San Francisco for the dubious honor of having the least amount of social mobility, right? And if if you are born under the poverty line, your social mobility quotient is what the likelihood is that you will die above it. And the social mobility is in single digits in Atlanta. And all those things being true it became more and more essential that we not be a decorative Giga. I don't even know if that's a word, but I've seen it in print. I've owned is it Giga. Anyway, we're, we're not decorative. we're not ornamental. We have a responsibility to work towards the public good, right? And for us, that takes a lot of different shapes, but one of them is that we have a massive educational program and it's for all ages, but it's particularly focused on, we have something called Theater for the Very Young that quite literally creates work for zero up to five. We bifurcate within zero to five, right? Because you make one kind of work for zero to two and a different kind of work for three to five. And the reason that we do that is back to the literacy issue, kids who have active, consistent, repeated exposure to theatrical narratives start, the neural pathways literally start to get wired for making that critical connection between this word means this thing, this string of words equals this concept, right? And so if we're living in a city with this kind of income disparity, with this kind of of suckish, suckish literacy rates, and and we have the balls to say we're a not-for-profit and we should have a tax-deferred status, then we better show up and be part of a solution, right? And that's become such a baked-in part of who we are. And once you start thinking that way about one element of your organization, right? So how about our education programs be about equipping children, educators, families with literacy-inducing tools? What if we, instead of teaching theater to teach theater, if we use theatrical practices across multiple disciplines, right? How can this help somebody be a better science student, math student at all, once you start thinking that way, you stop thinking about theater as an end game and you just, without front of mind realizing it, you think about it as a catalytic leverage tool that you have a responsibility to use in the way that your community could best be served by you using it, Mm. right? And I mean, this isn't gas on, gas on, gas on. This is not an original idea. And this is kind of baked into why we have regional theaters in the first place. And if if you really go back to our founding mothers, they were about how should theater live in community? That's what we were meant to be. We were not meant to be no shade at anywhere else. We were not meant to be the playhouse that imports whatever was on Broadway last year. Mm -hmm. Not without value, Mm -hmm. right? And I'm delighted that the Fox Theater is down the street from the Alliance Theater and there is a place where that can happen and people love it and and support it and long may it thrive. But I do think not-for-profit professional theater has a larger responsibility than that.
1: Wow, that was awesome. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but Sam is currently enrolled to get her master's at NYU in education and theater education.
1: Yeah, um, everything you just said couldn't have been more my cup of tea. I was like swooning I over it. As I love that. Listening. So what made you go into that? Um, I worked a little bit in educational theater in college. I had this very extended internship because I loved it so much. Um, for half of my college career, that was in educational theater. And I just, I couldn't get enough of it. And uh, I decided to, to make it my whole future. I think that's fantastic.
2: I mean, I actually think it is far and away the most important work that we do. And mm-hmm. one of the things that, that I think is so, so essential is, and sometimes it requires bullying them, is getting our country's best writers to write for young people. Mm. Right? That's where you need the best possible skill set, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's why, you know, when when we're looking for somebody to adapt uh, a piece of literature or to create a, a new event for us, we are gonna get the absolute best of the best. One of my favorite pieces of theater, uh, Right before, right before the world went sideways. Myra Coleman, who is a, a children's book illustrator based in New York, she has a, a book called Max Makes a Million. And Max Makes a Million was adapted for the stage and directed by Liz Diamond, who runs the Yale School of Drama Directing Program, who is, oh. she was Susan Laurie Park's first director. She's just this genius brain human And that's who we got to adapt and direct this children's book. And she made it into this jazz oratorio that we, the grown folks kept coming back and back and back. Like my kid had long since aged out of this. I just kept going back and seeing it for myself.
1: Wow. I think a lot of people's like people who don't come from the theater world. um, A lot of the time it's like the only version of theater they know is like the Lion King on Broadway or Chicago on Broadway, like those types of like huge giant shows on Broadway. It doesn't strike them that theater can play this monumental educational role in schools. And as you just said, like in children's lives, it's I I think about it all the time. (laughs) Well, I, I think about
2: when there's an eclipse, you know how to, to look at an eclipse, you don't actually look at the eclipse because you'd sear your retinas. You, you have the little cardboard box, right? And you hold the cardboard box and the eclipse comes past you and then you actually get to look at it but it has to be refracted so it doesn't break you into pieces, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I actually think that's, that's what our art form is meant to do. Right. And particularly when we when we muck around with the hard stuff, right? When we're talking about the 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 systemic racism of our American tradition, when we're talking about all of the many isms, the sexism and ableism and all the rest, if you look right at the problem and try to talk about it, it it becomes overwhelming, right? But if you refract it through a human narrative that that triangulates, right? Instead of you and I looking at each other and saying, okay, Sam, we're going to argue about this, right? We're instead going to sit side by side and there's going to be a third party, which is a work of art. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be able to talk about what we need to talk about in a safer way than if we just stared at the eclipse and seared our retinas it's
1: a fantastic metaphor <laughs> i just like the
2: the phrase seared your retinas
1: yeah <laughs> rolls idea. off the tongue <laughs> good visual too
0: <laughs> love to hear a little bit especially being in atlanta about And just cause as the world's reopening, what is y'all's plan for reopening post? How does that work as like an artistic director? What are you thinking about? Yeah. I hope there's another pandemic that people might be able to be like, oh, this is some advice, but.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's funny, right? Because it's, it's two tracks. There's one track which has to do with public safety, artist safety because right. of course artists aren't members of the public. That was interesting when I just did there uh, as if they were <laughs> a pair of opposing binaries. Um, there's, there's the safety factor. And uh, we actually, we were one of the first theaters that, that got an equity approval uh, back in December. We did a, a drive-in version of Christmas Carol uh, live. Um, and I mention it because it taught us Getting to a place where we had the union's blessing meant that we had to be so crazy thoughtful about every way in which artists and audience and craftspeople and stage management needed to be safe. Mm. Right. And we got it wrong so, so many times in the in the evolutionary process of, of writing our protocols. And the fact that we got a little bit of a head start back in December. And then we just on Sunday closed our tent season. We did about a all up, I think it was a 10 week run of some family programming and grown folks programming under, under a tent that we, big, big giant carnival tent uh, that we put out in front of our theater. And again, learning how to do this safely. So the biggest wrinkle right now, actually I'm coming back and this is somewhat exacerbated by the fact that Atlanta will always be in Georgia. Mm. Um, Our state was one of the earliest ones to say, it's all good, no masks required, no social distancing, go get your tattoo, go bowling you know, you do you, right? And it is a tricky thing to navigate the CDC guidance with the state's latitude and do the right thing. Because we don't want to be, to self-adopt something that's punitive, but we also don't want to be dumber than a box of rocks and endanger the health of our audience, right? So the navigation right now is we actually just, our, our season, we delayed forever announcing. This is, we announced this morning and we would never wait this long in, in the before times. But we didn't want to do that dance that everybody's been doing for the last 16 months of saying, in three months we're gonna, oh, wait, no, we're not. Okay, in five months, oh, wait, no, we're not, right? And so this felt like current vaccination rates, current case counts, current CDC guidelines, that we were safe saying, we will gather in person inside beginning on September 8th. We quite deliberately did a very ambiguous bit of verbiage around, we will match CDC guidance in our audience protocols? Because uh, if we said in our announcement today, and we will socially distance,
1: Mm.
2: right? And then we get through a Memorial Day where nobody's wearing masks and there's no spike in case count. And we get to, you know, Biden's hoped for July 4th level of herd immunity. Why on earth would we socially distance? right so it's it's about being nimble it's about being always 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 investigating what you learned that day and what does it mean for the next day so that's the that's the safety part of it the big i'll tell you a big question that we have right now just because you know the announcement of Springsteen's return at the St James that every audience member must show vaccination proof, right? I don't think that would fly in Atlanta, Georgia, right? Yeah. And it's, it's I, I read that and thought you ballsy wonderful people, I love that, right? But in the same way I was talking earlier about if you start with a point of view then ideological diversity goes out the window. If you start with a human concern, we all wanna be safe here.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Then maybe more people will stay at the table for the conversation, right? So there's that part. And then there's this this this, this year of America waking up. And what does that mean in terms of how you program and what does your first returning season look like? And if it doesn't look like you've been paying attention, then A, shame on you, and B, maybe you're not, but everyone else is going to. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's been a, there, there are these professional group therapy sessions that have been happening through the beauty of Zoom, with mm-hmm. folks all over the country. There are groups of us that have been talking to each other once a week throughout this entire thing. And it's been, it's, I won't say it's been healing because there's been too much trauma
1: mm-hmm.
2: for, for all of us, uh, but it has been an amazing resource to be surrounded by people who are willing to be vulnerable and say, I have no idea what to do here.
1: Mm-hmm. What
2: are you doing here? We're, we're like, I will say it's particularly true of artistic directors. We're like peacocks, right? It's like, look at my beautiful programming. Look at my <laughs> cool institution, <laughs> right? And that we, you know, we gather at our national theater conferences and we just preen and preen and preen. And what's been so different about this past year is the vulnerability of it the honesty of it the the I don't know of it and I am mm-hmm. grateful for that lesson
1: Peacocks you are a master of metaphor Susan <laughs> I love it um, so I'm just gonna be cognizant of time we, we normally get to uh, the Matt Damon questions right about now so excellent, the is excellent. finding Matt Damon finding Matt Damon uh, Yes. off with the easy one. Do you know who Matt Damon is?
2: <laughs> I do know who Matt Damon is. Thank you very much.
1: Uh, great, you're welcome. Uh, do you have a favorite Matt Damon movie?
2: I have a, I, I actually thought about this when I, when I saw that I got to do this on my calendar today. <laughs> I actually, my favorite Matt Damon moment was his Brett Kavanaugh on Saturday Night Live. It was impeccable, just impeccable. Watching. it.
1: And no one saw it coming. No one no saw no
2: one saw it coming. It was stunning.
1: <laughs> I agree.
2: He does but have
0: he, an act for comedy.
2: Yeah, yeah. And you know, mm-hmm. it's not like goodwill hunting sucks, but right. it it that his Brett Kavanaugh is it's at the top.
0: Amazing. Um, one question we love to ask is do you have a Ben Affleck? And if so, who is it? And that can mean whatever it means to you. Ben has played so many roles in math,
1: right? So,
2: So to me, that means: Do you have a reliable wingman who, with whom, you have great structural chemistry? Mm.
1: Great definition.
2: You know, I, I I will say that there is this. So funny that he comes to mind, but I think this is—I think he's my Ben Affleck, uh, B.J. Jones, who is the artistic director of a theater in Chicago called Northlight, and is got a bigger heart than anyone I know on the planet. He is the person that I can call or text and say, "What the fuck's going on here?" and we will have the completely honest conversations. That one desperately needs. And there is just a love and adoration and respect and um, filthy language uh, shared. So I think BJ Jones would be my Ben Affleck. Great answer. Wow. I have to Um, tell him that. I have to tell him he's my Ben Affleck. Yeah, yeah.
1: Touching, whenever someone tells you that. You know, yeah. means a lot. Is there anything you want to plug?
2: Our first show back is a world premiere musical called Darling Corey. And it is written by a local novelist named Philip, novelist and playwright named Philip DePoy. And it is, the uh, music is written by Christian Bush. And Christian Bush is the front man for Sugarland, And he also turns out to be just a, a ridiculously skilled writer of musicals and I am it is swampy it's set in Appalachia in the 1920s and there's uh there's there's these freaky mythological characters and maybe there was a murder and maybe bad things were done and it's it is gothic swampy goodness and we start performances
1: beginning of September. Wow that sounds amazing it sounds so good. Wow. So that's what I'll plug. Great, Great plug. Well, thank you so much. It's been an amazing conversation. I think this is
2: so cool what you're doing and God, I hope you get to them.
1: Really <laughs> We're not in do. any rush. We get to talk to the best people on the way. So this was fantastic Susan. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. Thank you.
2: Absolutely. And, and you're both always welcome, uh, at the Alliance and, and Sam know that we, um, we have a program with UT Austin where we have uh, graduate fellows in arts education who come and spend time with us. And we've been looking at opening it to other universities. So um, if that is ever of interest, uh, hunt me down, please.
1: I absolutely will. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Have good evenings. Awesome meeting you. you too. Bye. For listening to Finding Matt Damon. Please be sure to subscribe to never miss an episode. And if you liked what you heard, leave us a review. Special thanks to
0: Kristen Crack for the music and Jody Croucher for the sound. And Matt, if you're listening,
1: we're coming. <laughs> <laughs>